Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this month's episode. Before we get started, we just wanted to highlight that February was Black History Month. In this month's episode, we decided to reflect back on this with a discussion about tackling racism in healthcare. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hello, everyone. I am here with a friend and colleague that uh, I've newly met. Uh, He is a talented member of our healthcare system, but not one where we would normally think that we have in our midst. But uh, Mr. Lyndon George is someone who has been around the block uh, for a little while and has made some uh, big moves to healthcare improvement. But he's done it from a political lens and something that we often actually don't think of when we're engaging in healthcare. So for Macamerge podcast, some of you might have read his name in a, an article that wasn't so long ago published in the Hamilton Spectator, where he was interviewed about his experience as a person of a racialized minority and his experience in various emergency departments around Ontario. And he now lives with us here in Hamilton, and he's actually part of our Hamilton Health Sciences patient, is it patient advocacy wing? Uh, patient uh, family advisor. Yeah, there you go. So he's an advisor for the hospital about um, these kind of things. And he's really taken a spin to help us understand the patient experience more. But maybe, Lyndon, can you introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners of the podcast? Yeah, sure. So it's a pleasure to be here with you today, Teresa. Thank you for the invitation to join you on the podcast. Uh, you know, for me, uh, this really is just uh, my personal healthcare story and, and me trying to say, you know, if I'm experiencing this, I know others are too. And especially at this unique time when we're talking about race and healthcare and the need for, for change, um, it was really me just sharing my experiences uh, with our community. And, and so in that community, I'm, I'm also a uh, a uh, constituency assistant uh, in downtown Hamilton for uh, an MPP in the in the riding of Hamilton Center. And then I'm also a patient advisor uh, with Hamilton uh, Health Sciences. I'm also a board member of Hamilton Urban Core Community Healthcare Center uh, in the downtown Hamilton community. Wow, that's a lot of jobs. So we're definitely kindred spirits in that way. And, uh, and, and I would say that when I read the article, um, and that was, I believe it was in June of this year. So it wasn't that long ago as... It was one of those articles that took me aback. And I think that most of these articles are meant to do that. I think there's a little shock and awe with all journalism, as we've learned from some of our colleagues who actually are journalists and emergency physicians, yeah. like one of our alumni, Blair Bigham. But at the same time, I think that that shock and awe aspect made me do some really internal thinking about whether or not I'd been noticing uh, the experiences of racialized minorities in the emergency department. And one of the realizations, honestly, in conversations with yourself and other colleagues of ours that are maybe more experienced in this area is that I came to realization that because I myself am not Caucasian, I wonder if I carry around a bubble 
effect with me, that people might be less inclined to be a certain way when I'm around, knowing that I am actually there. So it's kind of that Hawthorne effect we talk about in science affecting the outcome. And maybe my naivete to this experience that you've seen and experienced yourself maybe an artifact of the fact that uh, people are on better behavior maybe when I'm around, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have certainly experienced racism um, uh, from the side of being a minority physician and having people ask me th- um, little microaggressive things like, so where, where, where are you from? And I'm like, you know, where were you born? And I'm like, Etobicoke? Like, <laughs> <laughs> not very far yeah. from here, right? Where'd you grow up? Niagara Falls. Uh, And 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 so those little things hint at me that there is some insidious backbone. And and I'll be honest with you, I I I have been notified by multiple people that Hamilton is one of the most racist cities in Canada. And so I just never noticed it. And I wonder if other people hadn't noticed it either. And so I thought maybe we could have a conversation about your experience and kind of your reflections on what leads to some of those experiences. Cause I think you're very articulate about that. Uh, and, and I appreciate that. I, I want to take a quick step back on like uh, where I come from in Hamilton. So I, I grew up here in Hamilton. My, uh, my aunt was a, a nurse at uh, what was Henderson hospital for I would say over 25 years um, at the maternity wing there. And so where I grew up in Hamilton Mountain on concession, my family doctor was right at the end of the road, up just down the block from where I lived. When I would have to get to downtown Hamilton, I would, I would pass literally two hospitals, you know, what was Henderson Hospital at the time, now Dravinsky, and then St. Joe's Hospital where I was born. So to me, healthcare was always this thing that was just just right at uh, at my fingertips, you know? So I always had this expectation that it would be there when I needed it, or like in some way that it was just, this is how every community had it, that there was a family doctor at the end of the road, that there was a hospital just down the, around the corner. You know, you probably had family who lived there. And it wasn't until I moved to Ottawa for university that I realized how fortunate we are here in Hamilton to have an incredible health network that we have extensively with, you know, and with McMaster University and, and the teaching uh, and the university uh, medical school there and, and, and how renowned it is. And so it really, when I left, that I appreciated the healthcare system in a different way and, and how accessible it was at the time. But once I got to Ottawa, I started experiencing, you know, after several years at university, I had, I had a DVT and I never knew what a DVT was. And, you know, I had this throbbing pain in my lower leg and, I, and it just was, you know, sore to the touch. And I went to the ER because I, I couldn't sleep. It was keeping me up. And, um, and that was my first experience with the DVT. And then subsequently after that, I had had another one. And so, you know, in the, in the story that's in their spectator, they talk about, you know, that DVT ultimately uh, leading to a heart attack and, and me receiving treatment in Ottawa for it. And that was kind of a wake up call for me about the accessibility and the way in which people kind of treated me when I came through the door and, and, not, and not necessarily listening to, the, to, to what had transpired with my health and, and, and taking that into consideration. And it left me, you know, for the first time wondering if people were really listening to me and if they saw me or if they were, you know, judging me, you know, coming in at, at, at you know, at that time in the morning, uh, first thing and, and looking at me, you know, a little, you know, not shaven and, and, and looking the way I did and, and asking this question of like, you know, do you do drugs? Like, and more than once and me having to feel like after, you know, being taken there by ambulance, thinking, you know, am I going to get the healthcare that I need? If, if like, depending on how I answer this question and just kind of being left there for an extended period of time. And eventually, you know, an astute cardiologist kind of comes over and, and uh, put something underneath my tongue, you know, after a doctor had said to me, look, I'm going to be sending you home shortly. And I, and I said to him, look, if you send me home, I'm going to be coming right back. I, I feel like I've got a thousand pounds on my chest. 
you know, and there was this kind of like, okay, let's, let's look at this again. And that kind of advocacy of self-advocacy when you're really feeling like all you want to, like, you don't know what's going on. You're scared. You're wondering what's happening and, and, and you're, and you're just not being listened to is, it's kind of a, makes you think, are you fighting for your life? And I think that's what sometimes, that's what I feel like racism is in healthcare. You're literally fighting for your life. And that's something that we, I, I, I think physicians and our community needs to realize that when racism starts to appear in our healthcare system, it's a life and death situation. And we need to treat it like that, that it's that serious for individuals. And if, and if we wait too long to address this issue, you know, we'll be talking about individual loved ones and, and their experiences after the fact when we can be doing so much more upfront. And so fast forward, you know, uh, to my experience just uh, last year when I was having these kind of, you know, the shortness of breath and the experience and I, and, and I end up going to the hospital here in Hamilton and these kind of like lasting implications of me thinking I need to be like, I need to put on the best face so that they will believe me because that, that stuck with me for a long time in my experience at the, in Ottawa. And so when I, I end up at the hospital and I start to see similar patterns from, you know, from that time, you know, almost, you know, seven, eight, 10 years ago, I was like, what is, what is going on? This is eerily similar. And it led me to start to, to talk about afterwards uh, that night when I, when I, when I, when I was sent home, I wrote an email and that email was to, you know, to the patient advisor uh, at the hospital saying, I think black patients at your hospital are receiving different treatment. And if I hadn't have had that first encounter in Ottawa where I kind of remained silent and I was like, you know what, uh, we all view doctors as being, you know, in a godlike status, to be honest with you. You're, 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 you don't want to go against someone who is giving you life-saving treatment. You just want to be able to say, here are my concerns. But this time I felt like I needed to. And that email, you know, I sent while, while in an immense amount of pain, but it was me writing because I didn't want to, I couldn't allow that frustration to go unanswered. Uh, and part of it was also, you know, as a constituency assistant, I started to learn the healthcare system from another end. And I got, I got to see it from the perspective of how, you know, how our healthcare system across the province is managed, how, you know, when, when someone isn't receiving care, the, 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 the mechanisms that we, we have in place. And so it, it was me self-advocating in a way that I would often advocate for someone else when they would contact their local, you know, MPP. And so, you know, it was the responses in our system that I think that we need to recognize that uh, when people make these complaints, that they're trying to save lives and they're trying to influence the system for change. And if and if right now, you know, if we're saying that healthcare, you know, we're triaging in a way with with racialized patients, and we're not we're not recognizing the profound effect that that has when you minimize their voice, when you're not listening, when the communication starts to get a little bit shorter, we can feel those things and we recognize it in our healthcare. And when we don't see people who look like us you know, we start to think, is this healthcare system really working for us? Yeah. And, and I would say that one of the other things to consider would be the systems pressures, all those other things that, that really just are burdening the healthcare system right now. Like we've talked about it before that, you know, we, we flip into what we call system one thinking, right? Like the, we have one of our uh, group members in the academic group, Dr. John Sherbino has done a lot of work that, you know, like it's what Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about Blink, right? In uh, a blink of an eye, we're already making some decisions and sometimes they steer us right, but sometimes they steer us wrong, just like we do with uh, any kind of diagnosis. And so I think a big part of it is that sometimes we don't realize the kind of bias that we entertain, whether that's a diagnostic reasoning bias or a racial bias, we still have the same brain, right? And that shortcut of needing to be able to make jumps like that, when we do, when it goes right, it's called a heuristic. Like every time, for instance, if I look at you know, like a, an object on my desk and I have to, from first principles, derive that it's a cup <laughs> every single time, 
I could not live my life. And so we have to form these neural networks in our brain to make associations so, so, so that we can read, so we can process information quickly. But that also leads us down the down the path of, of badness sometimes, I guess, is the other way to think about it. Because in making some of these jumps and using some of these associations, if the association is wrong, right? Which is, for instance, in your case, some people in your history, it sounds like there's an association between Black people and drug use, which is a bizarre, uh, to me, not a good association to have at all. Um, just as a point of disclosure, my first encounter with a Black person was actually my pediatrician. So I actually have always associated Black people with being really yeah. smart. <laughs> and yeah. so I have a very bizarre association. I've actually taken things like the implicit association test where uh, you actually see which way you, you, you kind of are biased towards. And, uh, and unfortunately, I'm biased against males that are Caucasian, which is, a, again, a bizarre association to have. But it probably comes from, again, my history. I work on it and I have several friends who are white and male and, and you know, and, and but I do notice for instance, when I'm in a leadership position, the, the tables that I'm surrounded of have less of those people around sometimes. And it's just something that we have to deal with. And I wrestle with that all the time. I always try to make sure that I can find ways to be uh, inclusive of all sorts of people. And I think people sometimes laugh about my disclosure of that because it's so opposite to the rest of the way that the world probably is functioning right now. But I think in the contrast of that, you realize, oh, but what if I substitute a different uh, a different group that I discriminate against, would that be okay, right? It's, it's bizarre that I, I, I have this bias, <laughs> Caucasians, um, and I have to audit myself to stay on top of being inclusive of that voice and acknowledging that. But at the same time, it's driven by those those implicit things. And I'm, I, I apologize. And I do try to make sure that, you know, in our podcast and our offerings of things, we, we actually do make sure we're inclusive, right? And so it's something to keep ourselves in check. And I think that this is something that we don't always engage in. And I think that that's, uh, I think to me, that's what the call to arms was uh, when, when I read your article is, is, can we check ourselves a little bit more, both as persons and as a system? to make sure that these uh, systematic biases are not actually baked in. Does that make yeah. sense to you? Yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, there, there are a few things I take away from there, right? And, and it's around um, how much societal stereotypes influence us, right? You mentioned around your pediatrician and, and that first encounter with, you know, with, with, a black, with a black person, with a racialized person, and how that influenced you and how it was positive. But how much is our negative influences in our social media in, in, in media and, and what, that we don't even realize that we're consuming that influence us, right? And so when, when, I would, when I would often raise that issue around, well, you know, why was that question being asked to me repeatedly I, I, around like, you know, my drug use and, and someone said, well, look, Lyndon, we don't see someone your age come in experiencing a heart attack, right? And I said, I go, but when you, when you acknowledge that you've had two DVTs, what, what question would you ask next, right? Is it drug use or is it a history of blood clotting? Right. I'm not a doctor, but but I would ask those questions of the medical history and not assume that that was it. And the other scary part around that for me was, you know, I, I, I don't use illicit drugs, but we all know we're in the midst of an opioid epidemic here and we should be receiving. You know, it doesn't excuse the fact of receiving the health care that you need. Right. And so it always made me wonder around around that kind of questioning and what it leads to. Because I think, you know, as physicians, you, you want to get the most information to make the right decision. And I think if you're listening to, to the patient and if you're looking at the health history, you're going to find out some facts that you maybe need to, 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 to adhere to. A hundred percent. It's that second yeah. look, right? It's it's actually yeah. making sure that you just don't hinge on that first 
most likely diagnosis, but then actually go into your differential and things like that. Um, and we teach that a lot, right? Like we teach that, but then it's, it's hard sometimes to always check yourself to make sure you're still maintaining your best practices. And, and, you know, um, if you actually were, I mean, you, everyone knows from pop culture, you probably know House, right? He's always hounding his fellows in that show. What's the differential? What's the differential? It's because we know that we have to fight that system one heuristic and bias driven response. And we have to flip into something called, we call system two, which is the, uh, which is the more methodical, thoughtful, careful uh, mechanism that slows us down 100%. And, and I think the, the great conversations we've had before ha have been around that phenomenon, right? That the systems pressures, the systems pressures may be lending and, and, and forcing us into system one, because when you have a weight room full of 50 patients who are clamoring to see the doctor, when you are bed blocked, and I walked into a shift the other day, I'll be honest with you, there were more admitted patients than there were beds in the emergency department. And so, I mean, let's flip this around a little bit. As someone who can affect change is embedded in some of the systems yeah. level uh, political machinations of delivering healthcare and understanding that bigger zoom out level, do you have any advice for us from that perspective on how to how, how to maybe believe some of that stress? Because I think that stress is forcing us to be desperate and, and then flip into maybe our less than optimal circumstances, let's put it that way. Yeah, and those cuts have been happening in our healthcare system for a long time and putting further pressure on it, right? It's been happening, in my opinion, for over 15 to 20 years with the kind of the, the top-down pressures to do more with less. And then it leads to that to that situation in your ER rooms where you're, you're relying on those kind of instincts and, and saying, well, you know, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm hearing. Uh, and so when, when, when I kind of look at it, I mean, the simple answer, you know, always is, you know, is it money? right? Uh, is it resources? Is it training? And I think you, you got to look at it holistically. You're not just going to fix this with, with one thing. One, one of the things that I realized when that, that next morning, when, when I was still, you know, when I was sent home and, and still, uh, you know, experiencing immense pain from, from everything that was going on, it was, I looked at the, the wait time for, for hospitals in my area. And when you, when you live in a, in a, you know, in a, in a downtown area and your wait times are long, and, and, and you look at the provincial average, you're, you're saying to yourself, what are we doing to change that? How are we changing it? And, you know, there are differences between HHS and St. Joe's and how they approach those ER times, right? And I will tell you as a, you know, as a black male who, or my family, there are moments when I, I will look at the time and say, you know, I, I, I know at a particular hospital that they may have a, a, roam, a roaming doctor in the ER room that may give me a little bit more time to be able to, to look at this and hear my voice. And I can sometimes feel that difference between the two. And, and so when you talk about that, that system level change at the, at the provincial level around healthcare, it, you, you do need to find those practices that work. We need to implement them. You know, right now, you know, not to go off topic, but when we look at this critical time during COVID and we're seeing the, dis, um, the disparity in our, in, our, in our healthcare systems around COVID and the impacts, we should be learning from that and we should be saying, what, are, what can we do differently? We need to move now. And what I would say to hospital administrations is that, that you need to start to, to transform your organizations uh, with, and you need to do it with action plans, not just with task force, because oftentimes it just leads to more conversations. We know the data is there. We know the voices are here. Uh, they've been calling for systemic changes for a long time. It's now both political will and executive leadership. And without those two things, we're gonna keep doing the status quo and having these kind of like conversations where we're just saying, we need to do more and nothing changes.
All right, and that is a perfect segue actually to another guest I'd like to invite in to the conversation now, uh, Dr. Madeline Verhoset. And uh, she has been someone who's been doing a lot of that actual change and process-driven orientation. And Dr. Verhoset has been at the forefront in my mind as someone who is a strong woman in leadership, who has actually taken on a big segment of population that maybe doesn't receive the same type of care that they should because of, I would say, maybe sometimes implicit bias, maybe a lack of education, a whole bunch of different reasons. Madeline works with uh, sickle cell patients a lot. She's a hematologist that's specialized. She's also, however, a really awesome uh, leader to watch out for in the healthcare system and has just taken a big leadership role in the benign hematology group at Hamilton Health Sciences. So Madeline, can you say hi to everyone? Hello, thanks so much, Teresa. So, I mean, I can talk a little bit about the work that I do with people who are living with sickle cell and... I guess where it connects up with these issues and, you know, focusing in on the experiences of black individuals, particularly in the emergency department. So with sickle cell disease, uh, the patients come from a really diverse set of backgrounds. You know, historically sickle cell has been most prevalent in individuals from malaria endemic areas or where that's their ancestry. But as you can picture a map of the world that actually represents a huge swath of the global population. So many of the people who we provide care to would identify as black. But I guess, you know, one really interesting observation about that is that label of black really encompasses a hugely diverse group of people. Um, so taking a step back too, when I think about, you know, what exactly are we doing in healthcare if someone who identifies as black is consistently encountering discrimination or barriers to care? And you just think, why would that be part of our heuristic? Why would that even be part of your clinical decision-making? You see this somebody's skin color and therefore start asking questions about drug use or this or that. Um, it, it really defies logic. And so somehow coming back to what Lyndon was saying, what is it in our culture, in our upbringing, in the assumptions and biases that are permeating our culture, um, you know, in the larger culture and then the medical culture as well, you know, we just need to blow that up and and say this is this is something that we're not gonna uh, we're gonna call it out when we see our colleagues treating somebody differently, and we're gonna really actively try to work against having that bias seep into the care that we're giving the patient. So where that comes in with the people who I work with the sickle cell, sickle cell, you know, is its whole own huge topic and a really difficult condition to live with, but it's an inherited condition. And the main interface with the healthcare system and the main point of friction and, and challenge that patients encounter is when they come in with an acute vasoclusive pain episode where what's happening is deep inside the bone marrow, inside their long bones where you can't see it, the blood flow is being interrupted and they're having an ischemic event deep inside their bone, right? So, you know, you think of it as different from, but analogous to the pain somebody's having when they have a heart attack, right? Or any other sort of ischemia where the blood flow is not going. And so then you have this person coming in in pain saying, I'm having a sickle cell crisis. The standard of care is opioid therapy. And you're already starting to have all these red flags going off because the team is looking at the person and saying, but you look so good. 
And so I hear this from my patients all the time. They say, you know, they looked at me and they said, but you look fine or, you know, but you're not yelling out in pain or, but your heart rate is fine or your blood pressure is normal. Um, not recognizing that someone who's having chronic pain superimposed with recurrent acute pain isn't going to have that classic physiologic response. So yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's yeah. a huge thing that we have to maybe drive home is that when we're teaching this, we have to really um, highlight some of those points and refresh those points. Um, and in fact, uh, some of the more recent literature has shown that a lot of people use adaptive strategies because guess what, if you've had a lifetime of pain, you're going to use things like playing a game on your phone, like Candy Crush or Tetris as a as a form of uh, actual escape. Right. And so people might be texting or on their phone. And that's not necessarily a sign that someone isn't sick or isn't in pain. It might be just their adaptive strategy. And so that's also part of the, the, the teaching that we have to do sometimes around this is that chronic pain patients are going to react to pain in a very different way. And I think that, again, that's another bias. Right. And whether someone is racialized or not, sometimes we discriminate against people who have chronic pain because they don't look like acute pain. And now that we have a lot more people who have chronic pain and have experience with that, I think we need to be flipping the paradigm, right? Yeah, 100%. You know, I think what's happening in society at large right now and in medicine uh, over these past, you know, four months, four to six months or so with, with the upswell of all the inequity that's been unmasked through COVID and as well the increased attention and recognition of racial inequities, both for Black and Indigenous patients, not just in the United States, but in Canada, right here, right in Canada, right in Hamilton. Now we can we can discuss these things uh, more openly and people are receptive to it. They're tuned into it. Fat, you know, reversing back a few years, you know, here we are, the sickle cell program, we're hearing repeated feedback from our patients saying, you know, I went to X, Y, or Z emergency department and they didn't listen to me or I went to X, Y, and Z uh, emergency department and they made me wait for four hours or they gave me one tiny dose of a pill, of a morphine pill, and then they sent me on my way even though the pain was still continuing. And so what we said was, okay, let's team up with the emergency department. Let's team up, you know, where, where are, where does the knowledge, where's the knowledge gap? And so we teamed up with the nurse educator at one of our local emergency departments and ran a two hour session for all the charge nurses. And in that session, uh, I'm up at the front and the nurse that works with me in the sickle cell clinic, and we're looking down on a room of white faces, right? And so when the part of the discussion comes up, I've, I've got one visual that I really like to use that calls out racism. And, and when I, as a white person, and my nurse who's also a white woman in this room of white nurses, and I say, and by the way, racism, you could actually feel, you could almost physically feel the discomfort in the room at that time with the fact that I had you know, all the different layers. It's like you've opened up this can of worms, but um, I'm really heartened by the the frank discussions that we're having about this now and realizing that with the sickle cell population, part of it is medical knowledge. Part of it is these concepts about acute on chronic pain, but such a huge part of it is just taking people seriously when they're coming in with uh, a serious medical issue and, and not starting to let these biases and, and let racism come in and mess up the really good care that we can otherwise deliver. 
Yeah, and I think it's not just about diagnostics. It's it's also about empathy, and it's also about really being able to be that whole provider. So whether you're a nurse or paramedic or a physician listening, because we have a pretty diverse audience, I think we have to check ourselves to make sure that we're trying to relate to our patients, even though they might not look like us, sound like us. I mean, uh, Lyndon, I'll, I'll invite you back in for kind of like a joint discussion now, because I do think that a big part of it is that, I mean, I'll be honest, at least you sound like me when I'm talking to you. But imagine you didn't because you had an accent. Imagine you didn't if you actually didn't speak one of the many languages that I speak, which is only two, English and, and Chinese, right? Um, and we couldn't connect in that way. That adds a whole another layer of um, alienation, right? Because there are folks who only speak uh, certain dialects, uh, certain types of languages and they might actually be multilingual and we're always saying well you don't speak English well you know like and, and I and I see that a lot and, and my French is so embarrassing that I'm always embarrassed when someone who is francophone comes in I have to use Google Translate or some other mechanism to be able to discuss with them because my French is actually embarrassing but I think that we have this worldview sometimes um, I think they call it in anthropology arrogant perception that everyone should be like us Mm -hmm. uh, and that our view, you know, we challenge that a lot, right? When you're five, you think everyone should look like you and your parents, and, and then you wander out into the world. I remember the funniest story I can tell about Eric and perception is that I went to kindergarten and I came home, apparently. My mom, I don't remember this, but my mom tells me I complained about how all the kids didn't know Chinese and like they were so. I said, I actually said dumb <laughs> because, mm -hmm. because they didn't know my language. And I think that that we carry with us. And I'm so embarrassed about that now, but I'll, in the safety of disclosure of you being our podcasters, I mean, I've overcome that. I know more English than I know Chinese now, which is the reverse problem now, because sometimes I need to use those languages. But I, I do think that there's a lot of other layers too that intersect with not just race, but I do think language, gender, all of those things intersect. What, what are I, I your thoughts? Agree. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I know, you know, when you when you look at your, your you go into the ER room and you're thinking if English isn't my first language and you're a senior, right? And and so how, how does that weigh onto the family dynamic of, you know, you often will see, you know, young, you know, a grandchild or, or a daughter or a son accompanying uh, their family member to ensure that they're getting the healthcare they need in order to be that interpreter, to be that bridge, to be that ally in the room. And we need to start to think about that in our healthcare systems to be like, you know, in our, in our, at our first points of contact in our triage rooms to say, you know, if English isn't that first language, what can we do to help, right? How can we, how can we deal with that issue immediately at the, at, at the, at the main door? Because if not, how does that implicate, how does that doctor uh, who's reviewing that chart now, uh, if they if the information isn't correct, you are now compounding the problem. And that's often what I find we see in healthcare is like, you know, all of a sudden it takes those moments of, of, of that first triage that can then set this on the wrong course. And so we have to do everything at that first point to say language, you know, you know, what, you know, what are those shortcomings uh, at that point of entry? And if we do that, it will help, but it's not going to, it's not going to fix the whole problem. We, we live in a multicultural society uh, and, and our healthcare system needs to be reflective of that. And I would also add not just our doctors, but our nurses as well. Uh, we need to have that diversity in our workforce up and down. Dr. Bohosik was mentioning, you know, uh, uh, around that, the component around uh, diversity in our, in our healthcare system. And I think in our, when we talk about our healthcare leadership, that is also, uh, and I mentioned that in the grand rounds, a little bit around this, the issue of race in our senior leadership. We need to address it up and down and we need more black 
Indigenous healthcare workers in our communities now. We really do. I agree. And I think that a big part of that is that we need to work all along the systems. And so, so part of that is like we call, call the pipeline issue, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, gender or race, uh, we do have a, a tendency for various reasons that we've discussed of preferring a certain kind of leader, the way they look, the way they talk, the way they act. Um, and sometimes that means that it's not Lyndon, you or I, and often, to be honest, it's not even uh, someone that looks like Madeline, right? Because she's, she identifies as female from what I understand. Um, and the idea would be that sometimes uh, we kind of perpetuate a lot of these systems because we don't have that diversity. And we know from the literature that the more diverse the decision-making, the better the decisions are. And that whether that's age, race, gender, all of those things, language, capability, ableism, let's not even get into the fact that a lot of buildings, sometimes you can't get into the building if you are disabled or you have to take a really long way around, which is like the worst idea when someone can, cannot ambulate well to then need them to go around the building to get to an accessible spot, right? Uh, these are all things that until you've had a different perspective, maybe it could be because uh, someone like yourself has stood up to actually advocate. It could be that you have a loved one who has just had a stroke and you realize how hard it is for them to get to see um, the physician or the nurse that they need to see that day. It's, it's all of these things. And I think that all, honestly, the best thing that you can do as a healthcare practitioner is is sometimes go with one of your colleagues or your loved ones or your family members as like, if you're not actually a patient yourself, but with a patient to just experience it from the other side, because all those pressures that you talk about, Lyndon, even at one of our own hospitals, one of the healthcare practitioners might experience all of those same things uh, mm -hmm. because Perfect. the system is not thriving right now, right? And, and I think that that's a huge part of what we need to do is work together as a group of people to improve our system. And some of that comes from actually looking in ourselves to, to find it in ourselves to acknowledge that maybe we have biases and you wouldn't be human if you didn't. You actually can't probably read if you don't because you have to have those same neural networks form to the, the same things that allow me to look at your name over and over again and say it the same way is the same cognitive process that sometimes drives some of your gut reactions to a type of person. Whether it's someone that bullied you in school has ruined the name Jessica for you forever, or uh, whether it's, you know, like my pediatrician who last, has a lasting impression on me to this day. All of those things actually do add up, um, but we need to acknowledge them so that we can fix the problem and create a better world for everyone. Agreed. All right, final thoughts from both of you. If you had one take-home point you want our listeners to hear, um, I'd love to know what you think. What's one thing that you want everyone to take to their next shift? Because our listeners, I think, are hopefully wrestling with something that's uncomfortable and therefore maybe you can emerge from the other side, but until they apply it, it probably won't be something that's real. So you can come to all and listen to all the lectures that you can. And of course, the, the medicine department of medicine rounds are up and open access on their YouTube channel. So if you want to watch the full rounds and there are two other amazing speakers on those rounds, so I can't sing the praises of that rounds enough. And thanks to Madeline for actually putting that together. So thank you so much. Um, but 
Lyndon, do you have a thought, uh, final thought that you'd like people to take to their to their next shift? Yeah, we have to redefine the way we do healthcare in our communities uh, to ensure that we are recognizing uh, marginalized voices and building um, and, and recognizing inequity in our healthcare system. And it starts uh, not with just a podcast, not just with a, a, a grand round seminar. It, it starts with you. And, you know, you have to understand that if, if you, you need to be a part of that solution. And I would say, uh, look, you know, look at the training that you have and what, how you can get involved and, and start to elevate the voices around you that don't look like you, don't sound like you, um, don't have the same faith as you, you know, whatever it may be, and start to talk about that in your healthcare system and then develop that action plan and implement it. Because we could talk about it all day, but this is a conversation about change and about making that change happen. And we've got to do that. The urgency is now. Awesome. And Dr. Vojtosek, can you tell us what you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I love what you just said, Lyndon, and I'm going to pick up on something that you, you said a moment ago, Teresa, just about that taking another point of view, because we that process of being professionalized into medicine starts to teach us ways of looking at the world, uh, the posture that we should have in the, you know, the patient-physician relationship. And uh, sometimes we need to go, go back to square one and start from a blank slate on that whole dynamic. And just as you said, imagine ourselves in the shoes of the patient. So whether that's because we've actually been a patient or whether one of our loved ones has uh, had to had challenges with navigating the healthcare system. You know, it comes down to kind of that golden rule concept of of uh, treating others as we would wish to be treated. And for me, you know, how how would we want to be treated if we were the patient? Well, it comes down to some of those system pressures and that tension as a as a physician or as a nurse or another healthcare professional, where you only have so much time and you have so many people to look after and, and how do you do that well? And I don't know that I have an answer, but it all comes back to what are our values and pri our priorities individually as we come into work each day. And if we're coming into work and we're saying, I'm coming today to treat people with kindness, to make sure that they feel heard and that they are receiving the care that is tailored to them individually, then, uh, you know, for me, when I leave at the end of the day, even if things have taken me a little bit longer, even if I've been running a little bit behind schedule, I, it's, it's in fact, in a way, an antidote to burnout, because you get that personal connection with the human being who is in the stretcher in front of you across the, you know, across the exam room from you, and you feel as though you've heard them, they feel heard, what they came for was healthcare to address their problem and you have addressed it. So, you know, I can't say enough about just that need to not cut corners because ultimately there might be some corners that we can cut, but you, you have a human being in front of you uh, where their health may suffer uh, as a result. So let's, let's keep on going and, and, and it's race and it's all these other things, uh, the, the intersectionality of all of people's various elements of their identity and recognizing that no matter what combination of identities that person may have that come from marginalized groups, in fact, potentially the more of those elements of someone's identity they have, both as a system and individually, we need to look at ways to raise the health equity by uh, 
even directing more attention to someone from those equity seeking groups. All right, well, thank you so much. I think that you're trying to show us how to live the cameras rules in a real tangible way. And, and I think that we, we talk a lot about patient-centered care. And I think that sometimes that becomes this God term, we call it, that, uh, that just applies to too much stuff. But I think the tangible things that you're talking about, like truly just that deep listening and truly trying to understand where people are coming from, I, I do actually think that is a huge antidote to burnout because taking the time to sit and listen and just be there with your patients is so important. And I think that sometimes we don't feel like we have the time, but I think that you have to make the time. And it might mean that you have to stay a little late to chart a little bit more later on, or it might be that you see one less patient, but there's someone else coming in after you, especially in emergency care. There's someone else that can see that next patient. And if we invest each time a little bit more, we prevent bounce backs, we uh, cut down on resource utilization. That investment actually has bigger payouts in the end and might actually stop someone from having to come back two or three times. And if we flip it around and think about it that way, it's a it's probably a time and cost savings in the long run. So I really think that what you said really resonates with me. So I'm gonna take that to my next shift uh, and uh, Hopefully everyone else who's listening will do the same. So thank you both so much for uh, joining me in this conversation. Thanks, Teresa. Thanks, Teresa, it was a pleasure. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. It's that time of year, Lauren. I can hear the coffee brewing and the white dress shirts being ironed across the country. You know what that means. It's time for CARMS interviews. Let's get hyped. Now, this episode is coming out in March 2021, which means if you're listening, you're probably staring down the starting line for everyone's first set of CARMS interviews. So let's kick things off with a congratulations. In spite of everything going on, from stressful clerkship rotations to the ever-present pandemic, you have managed to find the time to craft some pretty incredible applications on top of fulfilling all of your other responsibilities as a medical student. So let's think of the interview circuit not as a be-all, end-all performance, but as a victory lap. Just one more triumphant opportunity to show off all the work you've put in to be such an excellent candidate. And... If you haven't checked out Carm's cast on Canadium, I would highly recommend taking a listen to their latest episode out on interview prep. Dakota and Kara are two awesome medical students who have been making great episodes on how to best prepare for Carm's, and you'll find lots of pearls from residents across the country on how they got ready for their interviews. And I was a guest on one of their episodes, so I think it was pretty great too. Shameless self-plug there, Ben. Now back to our episode here on Carm's Corner. With interviews coming up, or maybe even ongoing, there are three big areas that we want to touch on today. We're going to be talking about number one, pre-interview preparation. Number two, mid-interview tips. And number three, post-interview reflections. We all know that interviews can be pretty anxiety-producing, like a big game or a final exam or even an emerge shift, 
When you're out to impress, you really want to do everything you can to be at your best on the day of. So when it comes to pre-interview preparation, we want to help alleviate some of that anxiety and recommend setting a routine that will be the same for any and all interview days. Thankfully, with virtual interviews, you'll be able to be in the same place and probably the same room for every interview. Capitalize on that predictability by setting a routine and giving yourself one less thing to worry about on the day of the interview. Work backwards from the start time of your interview. I like to drink my coffee, call my mom, cycle through a backlog of some calming R&B music. Whatever it is, doing the same thing in the same order can help eliminate stress over what the morning is going to look like, leaving you space to settle into that interview mindset. And of course, this is going to be different for everyone. I treated interviews just like preparing for an eMERGE shift, where I get really excited, but sometimes probably too sympathetic. My heart is racing. To calm myself, I like to do exercises such as boxed breathing. I'm able to ground myself using mindfulness strategies to become zen before starting. Breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, hold for four seconds. Repeat that a few times before you start up your next interview. Whatever works for you, go for it, because we know that the next stage is going to get pretty nerve-wracking, and that's the interview itself. My biggest tip here is pretty simple. Just breathe. Working through the interview circuit, there were plenty of questions that caught me off guard, or questions that I would start answering and finish in a totally different place. That's okay. Remember, you aren't being evaluated on one question but all of this other stuff that you've worked so hard on for the past few years and past few months. If at any point you lose your footing, circle back to a bit of that box breathing and get ready to move on to the next question. Absolutely. The other big tip I felt helpful more when answering questions was to focus on the main points that you're trying to convey. Every answer should have a clear theme or thesis that you want the interviewer to take home. Just like with letters, it can be really tempting to toss in the kitchen sink and just list everything off that comes to mind. But taking the time to really flesh out what you think are your best ideas creates clear and concise answers that are easy for the listener to digest. So now let's talk about the post-interview. You made it. Congrats. This is a chance to give yourself a big pat on the back. Take a chance to just relax and decompress. Grab a snack, go for a walk, watch some TV. Something to take your mind off those interviews that you just finished. Then, once you feel ready, reflect back on questions you answered well and the ones you think you can improve on. Think of it like a case presentation in Emerge. Sometimes your presentation just doesn't come off right. That's okay. Use this as an opportunity to refine your answers so that your next interview, you're going to be that much more polished. There is a high probability that similar questions, or at least similar themes, are going to come up multiple times in the tour. So thinking back on answers can help you be that much more prepared for the next stop. I know last year I spent a lot of time muttering to myself new and improved answers after an interview. Awkward staring from strangers aside, I think I was able to refine my answers throughout the tour. 
Think of it as reading around your cases. And the last point we'll leave you with is probably one of my favorite sentiments a staff passed on before I did CARMS last year. Remember, you are out there trying to impress programs, but the programs are also trying to impress you. As a candidate, you bring a lot to the table. So when you're attending interviews, try to keep track of what the schools can offer you and which one you think is going to be the best fit for your learning. The interviews are a blur. And a few weeks from now, when you're putting in your rank lists, you might forget the subtle differences between them. Write down what you thought about the resident group, the education programming, the location, and just your general gestalt of the program. All of this will be helpful information when deciding on your rank list down the road, and you'll be grateful to have prompts to remind yourself with. A high-yield tip for sure. Well, that's all we have for you today, folks. Best of luck on the interview circuit. And we can't wait to see you all at CAPE next year. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!